quiet attendant voice. <laughs> good morning, Gabby. Good morning, Christian. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? So good. Well, hey, who are we talking with today? We're talking to Will Perry. Okay. What can you tell me about him? Will Perry is just a dope guy, basically. He's worked kind of all over the place. Brazil, mm -hmm. he worked in Washington, D.C., and now he's in the U.K. doing financial services. So he has quite the life story and quite the experience within the U.S. as well as outside of the U.S. Cool, yeah. I'm interested to see uh, what kind of mirror he holds up to us in our culture. Yeah, he has some great insights just on all of that. He talks about sports diplomacy. He talks about the U.S. culture and U.K. He talks about culture shock. Mm -hmm. Cool, well, I'm sure he's got a with all these experiences, a bunch of fascinating insights. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Well, we'd love to get started with you giving us one of your favorite stories to tell. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good one. There's a, there's a lot of different uh, stories I could draw from in the in the archives. I think one one that comes to mind uh, would be I was working for the U.S. government, and I at the time lived in Washington D.C. And I fancied, you know, being a travel writer, I wanted to learn Arabic. And so I decided, you know, to, to go out to the Middle East for a little while, just kind of explore and just uh, on a shoestring budget, just went around without much other than a, you know, a ticket to Cairo, went around and backpacked through the Middle East for a little while. And part of that trip, I, uh, I took it, it was about a nine hour journey by bus from Cairo, Egypt, to the Egyptian-Israeli border to a town called Taba. I spoke very little Arabic, broken Arabic on this bus in the middle of the night in the Sinai Desert, freezing cold. The desert gets very cold at night. Again, flying by the seat of my pants once we arrived in Taba. Of course, I had an arranged sleeping arrangements. And so I ended up, once I got into town, a lot of things were closed. Um, there was a vacancy anywhere. And so I ended up hitchhiking um, on Taba Road, kind of this highway that runs along uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. And yeah, so I'm, I'm here, American, middle of nowhere, on the Egyptian-Israeli border, hitchhiking. Uh, a van ended up, you know, picking me up. Kind of felt like a Field of Dreams moment. And Ray Kinsella in this uh, old Volkswagen Westphalia van. Anyway, th this gentleman picked me up, got in the van, I told him I was looking for a place to stay for the night, and it was an interesting experience. I was, uh, we, he spoke broken English, I spoke broken Arabic, and it, it just kind of worked out. But we were on his way to take me to a place to stay for the night. There was all these security military checkpoints. And he's like, hey, uh, William, you, you see that blanket? Grab that blanket, crawl underneath the bench in the back. And this is mostly like half Arabic, half English. He's like, put the blanket over you and get under the, the, the bench in the back, the, the rear seat. I'm like, why? What's going on? I'm like, oh, they're looking for America. You know, they're looking for Americans. And just let's just play it safe. I'm, I'm not going to tell them that I have an American with me. And uh, so that was the beginning of what was a really fun experience in Egypt. Everything turned out just fine. We got through the military checkpoints. Really nice guy. But it, there were some, some precarious um, you know, moments in that, in that journey. It sounds like you got really lucky with that driver in Egypt. Yeah, I got I got lucky with my uh yeah, I was young and unafraid, I guess. I was uh and, and stupid, you know. But uh yeah, I think I did get lucky. And then from there we went on to uh I, I, I was doing this all by myself 
you know, a solo trip. And then I, uh, once I crossed the border into Israel, um, I had another really interesting experience. That's one of my favorite stories of, I was at a Camp Ada, UN refugee camp uh, in Bethlehem on the Palestine side. And I had the opportunity to, and I'll get into this more later, uh, some of my backgrounds around sports diplomacy, conflict resolution. And so I worked with the Palestinian and Israeli youth using sport as a medium for dialogue and, and conflict resolution there. All right. Can you kind of walk us through how you got to where you are now, kind of your where you grew up, your education, your background, the career path that's led you here? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm um, a Seattle, Washington native, very proud of the PNW, Pacific Northwest. Um, I grew up at the base of the Cascade Mountain Range uh, in Snoqualmie Valley. If you've never been to the Pacific Northwest, it's, it's magical. It's uh, one of the most beautiful parts of the planet. My education path has been rather unique. I've always embraced change and, and seeking out you know, really interesting experiences. So I went to a private Catholic high school. I MLDS, went to a private Catholic high school. I wanted to have a more diverse experience. My undergraduate began at BYU-Idaho. After my mission, I went to BYU, uh, ultimately transferring to BYU-Hawaii, uh, where I graduated in history. For my education you know, background, I, I made some really interesting friendships with professors at BYU-Hawaii uh, and BYU, but uh, in some of those friendships and some of the influences those professors had on my, my life ended up being a huge catalyst later in my career and the direction that it took. So from BYU-Hawaii, when I, when I graduated, I got a postgraduate international research grant. So they paid for me uh, to move to Rio de Janeiro, all expenses, room and board and travel. And um, I had a per diem on food and, and things like that where I could carry out research. My undergraduate thesis was around, was focused on Rio de Janeiro and the conflict between the state, the government, and the drug traffickers, the, the crime that's rampant in the favelas or squatter communities of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, and so I spent time in the favelas working with people of all walks. I, I worked with uh, the police. I worked with government officials. I worked with nonprofits, NGOs, IGOs. I worked with drug traffickers and drug lords and your everyday civilians. Again, there, the application was sport as a medium for dialogue and change in divided communities. From there, I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, my goal in moving to D.C. was I wanted to be a foreign service officer and work for the State Department, kind of do go overseas, get posted in a new place every few years. Ultimately, I, I you know, had the dream to be an ambassador. And so I moved to D.C. without really any plans, similar to, I guess, kind of similar pattern you're seeing. Yeah, I, I found a way. I held some odd-end jobs along the way when I was in D.C. At the beginning, I was a uh, personal aide to a former congressman. There, uh, Blue Dog Democrat, the late James Santini. Then I worked for the George Washington University Law School so I could get more exposure to the legal community. And then I eventually, uh, after passing all the security uh, background and checks, I, I eventually got a job with the U U.S. Department of State. Yeah, so I spent about five years uh, mostly in the public sector when I was in Washington, D.C. and got into the private sector. From there, that was kind of a launching pad, right? So, so when I finished undergrad, between undergrad graduation at BYU Hawaii, moved to Brazil, moved to DC, spent about five years there, and matched with a professor in the UK who specialized in sports and uh, peace building through sport. And so naturally, you know, that, that I gravitated towards that. My wife and I 
moved to the UK where I did my master's degree. The goal, the kind of the plan was always to get back in the public sector, uh, work for the United Nations, perhaps in some capacity via, you know, an attache diplomat. But, you know, we had, life happened and I uh, ended up going back into the private sector. When I, when I did that, that was kind of my first foray into sales. Yeah, I learned a lot, gained confidence in a skill I didn't know existed. Ended up deferring a PhD program that I got accepted into immediately after my master's degree to, to kind of, yeah, let's, let's see what this whole sales thing, tech company is all about. And that was in Utah. And again, not being from Utah, you know, Utah has a, a thriving Silicon Slopes tech scene, as I'm sure everyone on the, everyone in the audience will know. From, from that company, I had my first experience being recruited, which, you know, I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. So wait, they companies actually like put you on a plane and roll out the red carpet and, and give you all this, give you an allowance to eat on their dime just to see if uh, they want to hire you. So that, that was pretty neat. Went to another tech company, spent uh, about four, four years there. That next tech company was a, it was a pivotal time in my career and in life. My wife and I, we became homeowners. We had children uh, with two boys and we established a, a financial foundation. And it, and it also really clarified what I wanted to do in my career. You know, I think up until that moment that, you know, that third tech company, I, I always kind of had my eyes on the rear view mirror, you know, just kind of wondering, oh, you know, should I get back into the foreign service? Should I go back to the public sector? Again, a lot of lessons learned from there. Um, I, I actually had a, an experience with a tech company where it's you know, very much a, a crash and burn experience. Many lessons learned uh, on that one. And a short stint where I ran sales for a small startup uh, in Silicon Valley. You know, students who are looking at you know, how to take your career and, and lessons learned. It's always helpful to talk to people who have made mistakes and uh, try to learn from those. And one of, the, one of the mistakes I made with a tech company was you know, don't make brash decisions when it comes to your career. You know, take your time, uh, get to know the executives you'll be working alongside or for. Uh, be thorough in speaking with the team to know what you're getting so, yourself into. And remember that you know, title, money, investor profile of a company shouldn't be the core reasons you choose a company. There's so much more. Having a really good mentor, you know, other things that, that really matter. And then finally, and I'll stop waxing poetic here, I'm, I'm now in London in my dream job, and we can get into that you know, more, I'm sure, in the interview. It's interesting that you bring up relationships and how that's kind of been a driving factor in how you've gotten to where you are now. Um, speaking about your current experience in London, can you tell us a little bit about working with the European market? Yeah, so that's a, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, doing business in Europe is quite a bit different than in the U.S. for many reasons. If you look at the whole of Europe, the continent, it's comprised of so many languages, government guidelines, you have GDPR, data protection, data privacy laws that are, you know, the European Union, now that the U.K. is no longer part of the European Union, there's a whole other considerations and legal processes. And uh, my company, while London is the head office for EMEA. Okay, so EMEA, or E-M-E-A, stands for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. We have to abide by all the local laws, you know, we have in the Nordics. It's very different in France and Germany and those employment laws. And then you start thinking about what's socially acceptable in conducting business. In the UK, 
uh, you know, as soon as I start speaking, people are, will know that I'm not from here. Stereotypes about different cultures, and some of those are true. Some of them are, you know, spot on. And so it's uh, it's definitely something that I have to be mindful of that people might expect me as an American to be, you know, one of the stereotypes that I often find is true is overbearing or loud. And so I, I'm very mindful of that going into meetings that they're almost like expecting it. So I want to counter that, you know, when I work with German colleagues or uh, German customers, you know, Germans are very well known for being hardworking, rule abiding, direct and honest. And so understanding how to work in with Germans is a skill. The French are, you know, they prefer that business is conducted in French, or at least an attempt to speak French is will go a long ways in building relationships with French companies. You know, in the UK, avoiding discussions around taboo topics, which in the US, oftentimes in the US, it's almost worn like a badge of honor to be direct and almost this concept of being unfiltered is almost considered a good thing. It's not really a thing in Europe. You, you need to, you know, maintain the filter, right? It's uh, politeness is, is, is very, very, it's of the utmost importance over here. You know, I didn't grow up in Utah and, and in the U.S. conducting business when I, when I lived in Utah. You know, I was, on, I was on a plane nearly every week flying around the country, different from New York City to L.A. to, you know, the South, to the, all over the place. And uh, alcohol consumption in the U.S. is one thing. Uh, you think it's a thing in the U.S. Uh, you're in for a, a surprise in the, in the U.K. and Europe. It's just part of the culture. Every conversation, every like business meetings, building relationships are done in pubs. And that is where you go. You meet at the pub, partly because the weather is so rubbish over here that um, you go to the pub because it's just chucking it down, as they say, uh, it's pouring rain. So that, that's just one thing, right? So, you know, being mindful of the culture and, okay, how to fit in and how to carry a conversation. Football is king, right? Football, meaning soccer. You know, rugby is also very popular, especially by traditional dyed-in-the-wool businessmen. And I primarily work in the financial services banking sector. And so understanding the rules of rugby, um, even cricket, uh, will get you a long ways. And that goes for any of the cultures, but that's specific to the English culture. Do you feel like your experience traveling around the U.S. and working with different areas here has helped you prepare to work with different European countries? Yes, it definitely has prepared me because in the, in the U.S., the landmass in the U.S. is just, it's huge. Going to meet with someone at a tech company in Seattle uh, or someone in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, to New York City, to Raleigh, North Carolina, Austin, Texas, you're very different you know, personalities in those groups. Uh, I met with folks at some large Fortune 100 companies. I, I walked in and was very surprised to see a man in a suit with snake boots, leather boots, and a cowboy hat. And he was a senior executive at the company. I was like, okay, wouldn't, wouldn't see that in Seattle. You know, in New York, I came prepared wearing my grays and my blacks. And that, that's what you wear kind of dress code when I say grays and blacks is like my bag is black, my suit is black, my tie is gray. You don't really mix it up too much with the color scheme in New York City. But when I had business meetings in the Bay Area, it was brown shoes with kind of white soles with dark jeans. So for sure, the U.S. is diverse in its unique cultural aspects. But uh, I mean, Europe just takes it to a whole nother level. Can I ask, 
because you've mentioned kind of working and living in Brazil and the U.S. and the U.K., have you ever really noticed any big culture shock moments during your travels? Yeah, that's a good question. So as, as an expat where I've had a residence um, all over in the U.S., I've, I've hopped around from Seattle to Hawaii to Detroit, Michigan to Washington, D.C., Virginia, Utah, Idaho. And then where I've lived overseas, I've been primarily Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, Sao Paulo, up in the north of England, York, West Yorkshire, now here in London. And when I think to the cultural differences and some of the shock, I think when I first moved to Brazil as a 19-year-old, it, it was definitely a huge shock. Uh, Brazil is a place of so much natural beauty, uh, rich in natural resources, incredible food, sports. Brazilians are warm and friendly, open, they're loud, they're smiley, they're physical, emotional, like everything. It's just such a beautiful, amazing culture. But it's also a place of devastating poverty and you know protracted violence and, and extreme corruption. And so the juxtaposition of these worlds is so stark and bewildering at times. And comparing that to all the previous 19 years of my life, I grew up in a diverse high school where it was culturally, racially, re- religiously diverse. You know, that was that was one thing, but it was I hadn't I hadn't been exposed to poverty at that level and and health challenges at that level. And it was it was life changing for me and it helped influence the direction that my career took on focusing on international development and aid and conflict resolution. You know, and I think to juxtaposing that to uh, the U.S., you know, the, in the U.S., we're a nation that places, you know, great value on individualism and personal freedoms. You know, we're, we're a nation that exports a great deal of things, you know, the, the film industry, music, sports, fast food, among other things. You know, we're also a nation with a widely accepted global opinion by other countries. Global opinion and, and stereotypes, true or not, of oftentimes being materialistic. I, I mentioned loud, overbearing, overweight even. And so I've, I found, you know, myself, I'm like, yeah, I got to make sure I stay in tip-top shape because, you know, <laughs> Europeans are, are tip-top shape. You know, Americans are gun-obsessed. So that's another thing. They always expect you to, you know, be talking about all sorts of uh, interesting topics. So those are just things that I've been very mindful of. And I guess in the UK, when you asked about kind of the, the transition and how all the culturals com- cultures compare, the UK is comprised of four countries inside the United Kingdom uh, or Great Britain, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. The UK has long been an ally of the US, but in many respects, we are worlds apart culturally. And there's this kinship that is very strong, but it, it kind of ebbs and flows with so many nuances to how history is taught in the UK, how you know American British history is taught, how in the US, and how it's taught over here and the way business is conducted and cultural norms. And one thing that I think is worth noting is it was almost easier being an expat in Brazil where I had to learn a new language and the culture was so uniquely different from the US than it was you know, the first time we moved to the UK in 2012 coming over because I almost expect that, oh, the UK, I mean, we ultimately we were a British colony and we speak the same language. So, you know, in the UK has David Beckham and Hugh Grant and, uh, you know, all, 
all these amazing Emily Blunt and others and Judy Dench. And so we love, we love those actors and actresses. And so there's almost the expectation that things will just be the same and we'll get each other. But the language itself is so nuanced and different. There are, I mean, I started compiling a, a whole uh, list of, I'm like up to like 10 pages right now of, you know, what does this word mean in the US? What does it mean here in the UK? And this idiom or this phrase means an entirely different thing in the UK than it does in the US. And so it's, uh, it's interesting. That is super interesting that you brought up language because I think that a common thing that we learn when we're going to a country that speaks a completely different language is try to learn the language before you go to make the adjustment easier. But uh, it's good to know that even in the UK, when we're supposed to be all speaking the same language, that it's good to come with the expectation that it's still going to be an adjustment, even though it's technically the same language. So you mentioned sports diplomacy, and I think that that's like super interesting. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that. I kind of want to hear just like everything about it. Uh, you said that you got interested in it because of a professor. Is that right? Yeah, I, there's a professor actually. Uh, he's a current professor at BYU Hawaii named Chad Ford. So he's been a many many people know him as an MBA columnist. He has a, a podcast. He actually just put out a book that he's putting out called Dangerous Love. It's coming out I think this month actually. And in Chad, I was a TA in one of his classes. So he heads up the uh, peace building, the International Cultural you know, Program and Peace Building Institute at UI Hawaii. And I had the chance to talk to Chad and be his TA. That was a pivotal moment because he, our career paths have actually been, uh, you know, there's been some parallels. He, so he did a master's in conflict resolution. He has a JD from George Mason University. He's done a lot of work in the Middle East using sport, specifically basketball, with an organization called Peace Players International as a medium for, for dialogue and universal, almost this universal language that can be applied where you take mixed teams of groups. So it could be Palestinians, Israelis playing on the same team to overcome preconceived notions and misconceptions about the other. So they're getting away from generational uh, miseducation about what a Palestinian is like and what a Muslim is like, what you know an Israeli is like or a Jewish person is like. And you break down those barriers, barriers through sport. And there's kind of these timeout moments during the course of playing sport. So I was exposed a little bit of that with Chad. And then when I moved to DC and did my field work in Brazil, I had the chance to apply that through the lens of football in, in Brazil or soccer. And then Further, I, I did some research in baseball and divided communities, and uh, that, that's what sparked it initially. And then I, I worked with the United States Department of State on uh, some sports exchange programs in D.C. I volunteered for an organization called D.C. Sail, a sailing nonprofit on the Potomac River in D.C. that uh, the whole desire was to get youth from underserved, underprivileged areas to come in and have a new experience that they might not otherwise have access to. Getting the youth involved, building these relationships, getting to know people that are from neighborhoods that are different than you, that you might not, not naturally run into in some of your social circles. And expanding the lens, and I'll tell you, it was as, I, I gained more understanding, I learned more, I feel like it was selfishly more to my benefit in education than it was those kids. I, it opened my eyes at a young age to power of sport, but I mean, sport was just the vehicle, the, the means to, you know, increasing greater understanding, greater love, greater empathy, 
really, I mean, especially with everything that's going on in 2020, where the world just seems to be off its hinges with, you know, COVID, with racial injustice and all the crazy things that are happening in the world. We need more love and understanding and empathy. Yeah, so I think sport can be a huge driver for that. That is super awesome, just the impact that sports can have. That's really cool. Um, just to close up, we just want to say thank you so much for talking to us today. I would love to just ask if you have any parting thoughts, words of advice for people who are wanting to work internationally to experience new cultures and any advice that you might have for them. Yeah, some of the big things that, you know, you got to look for, I, I would say my advice for students would be you know, get a mentor or two or three I can't tell you how important that is. You you may find your mentor at your place of employment. You may find it at the, the congregation to which you belong. You may find it at the gym or your ski club or whatever the case may be. Get a mentor. Speak with someone who's who's already done some of those things that's taken some of those risks and can guide you. But it's important not to just follow the mentor's advice blindly. And then the other, I would say, you know, to put it bluntly, we got to stop wasting our lives away scrolling through social media echo chambers and, and get lost in books, right? Like the good old days. Rack up overdue fines at your local library. That should be a badge of honor. You know, be bold and decisive. Try something. You may fail or not like it. That's okay. Uh, then go for something else and rinse and repeat. Travel, travel, travel. You know, of course, once we're on the other side of this virus, follow that, that advice. Seek friendships from from people who don't look, speak, or share the same natural interests or hobbies as you. Uh, I can't emphasize this one enough. Uh, one of the biggest reasons, going back to my previous comment, you know, our country is so divided is because we tend to live our lives in these pockets of comfort, and we build walls instead of bridges. Uh, so what society would want, you know, you to believe is the quote unquote other. We have to stop the fear, embrace what's different. Uh, when I think about my colleagues that I work with here in EMEA, you know, in my office, if everyone came in, just people who were headquartered here in the London office, you have 100 or so, 125 people is all in this office. And you have about 30 to 40 nationalities, unique countries in, in that mix. And the polyglots, the people who speak multiple languages, uh, it's immense. The religious, the ethnic, the racial diversity is tremendous. And oftentimes, it's not until we go abroad, we go international, we travel, but it's not just travel to travel, you know, for travel's sake or be a tourist. It's so much deeper than that. It's if you go on a trip abroad, go choose a, you know, an Airbnb or VRBO, find a place where you can build a relationship with someone and become pen pals. And I've, I've done that over the years with, with people and that's really shaped my understanding. I, I went to uh, the Baltics, my first time going to the Baltics, I was in Tallinn, a city in Estonia. And uh, another place I went to Riga, Latvia. And I stayed at, my wife and I stayed in the Airbnb and we're still very close friends with people. We stayed two nights with them and we still stay in touch. And it's given me, when I actually, when I go into, the social media, what can often be echo chamber, can also be a really, really good place as well. Uh, I see what they're posting in light of the current, you know, world climate and crisis day, and it gives me perspective. So I'd say, yeah, just stop the fear, embrace what's different, 
find the people, find people who have taken the path before you. Again, going back to the mentor aspect, like even just my wife and I and our, and our boys coming out here, we didn't know what type of visa to get for our family. So I spoke with people who uh, they're American expats and they helped guide me on that. And I, and I guess the last point you know, of advice here is there are so many organizations, corporations, academic organizations that, believe it or not, are, are dying to give money to you, to fund your adventures, to fund your dreams and experiences. And the key is, you know, sitting down and putting pen to paper, writing about your goals and aspirations and what you want to accomplish. Going through that, getting some help, you know, with friends or colleagues, editing what you're, what you're thinking about, packaging that up in a way that you can ultimately sell it to your audience and say, listen, I want, I've always wanted to go to Antarctica and uh, do research on penguins. And I've always wanted to go see the Northern Lights, but I want to research Northern Lights in the context of climate change. And well, great, do that and have a reason behind it. And people will pay. I got an, an international research grant fully funded doing that. My company here, I didn't just go international with my job. Uh, it was not an easy thing. I had to have a skill that my company here had to prove that they could not find by hiring some, a UK resident. So they had to prove that on my job application. And then they sponsored the job relocation. All expenses sponsored flights and relocation of all of our, all of our materialistic goods that we brought over. I, I think it's the part of thought is like, be bold and get out there. Be bold and get out there. I love that. Thanks so much, Will, for being with us today. This is really insightful and informative, and it was just really awesome to hear about your kind of life story and your lessons that you've learned. So thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. All right, Christian, what do you think? That was incredible. Will has done so much with his life, it blows my mind. Yeah, no, he is super awesome, and he just loves helping people succeed. So it was really awesome to hear his advice and hear his experiences. Super fun. For sure. Well, our Hub listeners, head over to internationalhub.org for more great podcasts, articles, even assessments to help you develop your international competencies. These are all tools that we provide you so that you can take Will's advice to be bold and get out there. See you next time.